I'm Rob Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Now, here's a company to cherish. It'll sell pretty much anything to anyone and, while doing so, pass on your details to the Chinese government. Hey, what's not to like? All you have to say is open sesame. Yes, this is Alibaba. In 1999, Chinese businessman Jack Ma totally reinvented the world of shopping with his catchily titled business, first to the people of his home country and then to the world. The slightly weird former English language teacher from the eastern Chinese city of Hangzhou created an online business empire that in 2014 saw the largest ever launch on the US stock market. It raised 25 billion US dollars. Jack Ma's superpower is really his ability to build teams. By helping Jack Ma, you know, fast forward, by helping him go to Australia and even helping him financially support himself and, and his wife and buy a flat, they ended up helping create one of the world's greatest capitalists from a couple that was definitely very left-leaning, so. I call him an alien, like Martian. But that's also sort of a loving nickname because what is embedded in that nickname is the fact that this guy is uh, seeing the world from like an otherworldly perspective, right? He's like an alien looking at the opportunities on Earth and this is why he's able to be so strategic and so forward thinking. He did speak English, he does speak English. Uh, again, it's not always grammatically 100%, but he's one of the most gifted communicators I've ever met. He's kind of, you know, he's a jack-in-the-box. He's buzzing, he's wanting to do things. He's kind of, he's constantly kind of, not challenging, but actually dreaming. And that is when his problems really started to become quite acute. You might have always linked the name Alibaba with a woodcutter and 40 thieves in the 1001 Nights collections of stories. Well, at the end of the 20th century, a man known as Jack from the city of Hangzhou in the east of China chose Alibaba as a suitable name for his business. He decided it was the kind of thing the people in every country in the world would already know, giving his company immediate name recognition. Nowadays, the name Alibaba is probably now much better known for the company that man, Jack Ma, created. The highest earning e-commerce company on earth, with nearly 250,000 employees. Alibaba defeated the giant enterprise of eBay in China and now runs leading financial technology, cloud, AI and internet services. What experience, knowledge and gifts did this tenacious gentleman have? A man who boasts of his fantastic failure to secure employment at KFC and has no coding experience whatsoever. How did he change forever how we buy and sell things? Who exactly is Jack Ma? Jack Ma is an incredibly charismatic guy and the way in which he tells stories, the way in which he's kind of quite humble and authentic in terms of uh, his background and his failures and what he wasn't good at and then what he was good at. And he himself will always admit he's not the greatest technologist in the world, he's not the greatest visionary in the world, but he is somebody who has a passion to help society to be better and to enable Chinese people to shop and explore and to kind of better themselves. That's kind of thing has, has really infected people over time. You can see it with Jack Ma when he started Alibaba. The, the day he started Alibaba, 
he got together 17 friends and they said, together, we're going to be the, the 18 co-founders of this business. And then as he grew up, you know, a moment which is captured on YouTube forever, Alibaba had a great kind of staff meeting and he came on stage and he did a Michael Jackson impression and he sang Thriller, not particularly well, but he sang Thriller uh, and with all the moves. He came back the next year and he was the Lion King. So he has this huge kind of desire to have fun, uh, to connect with people, to not be too serious about what they're trying to do, but to have this passion to do something more for society and to do something more for his company and the people who work in it. That's Peter Fisk, a business advisor who has written 10 books on international business. Jack Ma's journey in business seems to be moulded from very specific personality traits, the gregarious nature, language skills, a desire from others to work for him, and a real understanding of what customers wanted, combined with being in the right place at the right time. He skillfully rode the fine line that exists in China between free expression, enterprise, and the wishes of the ruling Communist Party. With this, though, he very much had his ups and his downs, ending, as one man told me, with a sock in his mouth. Metaphorically, at least. But Jack Ma, as he became known, was born Ma Yun in 1964 in Hangzhou in southeastern China. He grew up at a time when China was very much isolated from the rest of the world. Duncan Clark is a friend and an early advisor to Jack Ma, and is the author of the book The House That Jack Ma Built. He was born just ahead of the Cultural Revolution in China, right? So he was born in the sort of lull between the Great Leap Forward, which is sort of a disastrous experiment of Mao, which kind of almost bankrupted the country, to then the Cultural Revolution, which, you know, tore the country apart. So you wouldn't have said that Jack Ma's birth in the early 60s was propitious, you know, was the sign of somebody who's going to be a great entrepreneur. <laughs> I think importantly, his parents both had an interest and in some cases spent a lot of time uh, performing, almost like a sort of form of stand-up comedy, but a, a thing called ping tan, which is like an art form, which involves dialogue and telling jokes and, and also this music. And so he came, I would say, from a surprisingly artistic background, even though his parents, I think, his father worked in a sort of photography plant or some, you know, manufacturing plant. Everybody, of course, at that time in the 60s in China with either working on the fields or they were deployed in factories, right? There wasn't much of a choice back then. They were a literary family. They read a lot. Uh, Jack Ma himself read. He read English books when he could as well. He sort of taught himself English by listening to the radio, including later things like Voice of America, BBC. And also famously, he practices English by walking up to tourists as China sort of opened up. And that was only later in his teens, right? Because, of course, if you remember, uh, President Nixon sort of reopening of China-U.S. relations happened in the in the seventies. There was a famous trip when Nixon traveled to Hangzhou, right? So Hangzhou is not only a, a provincial capital of Zhejiang; it's also quite an important tourist destination. It's a beautiful, there's a beautiful lake there, and so tourists, there were early adventurers, let's say, in the mid to late seventies, started to trickle in. So, from a young age, Jack Ma was seeking and making the most of the opportunities that he saw in front of him. Duncan Clark again. The important thing was that he was born in a city where tourists came early on in China. That was his window to the world, was tourists. And specifically, he would walk up to the hotel, and I've stayed there, and if you go to Hangzhou, you, you can visit the hotel. Basically, he would walk up and ask people, like, can I give you a free tour of my city? And he would speak in his unique fashion of English, which is not grammatically perfect, but, you know, he's a very charming individual. You can imagine the same as when he was a boy, and, and that's what many described him. Famously, there was actually an Australian family called the Morley family that came, and Jack befriended the son. It led to actually a very interesting 
part of Jack Ma's life that his first trip overseas was facilitated by the Morley family. The Morley family was there at such an early date that the parents were actually committed communists. One was a member, I think, of the Australian Communist Party. And, you know, they'd visited Cuba the year before. So the type of tourists you were seeing then were still ideological tourists. You know? And the irony became that, you know, fast forward many years, by helping Jack Ma, by helping him go to Australia and even helping him financially to support himself and his wife and buy a flat, they ended up helping create one of the world's greatest capitalists from a couple that was definitely very left-leaning. So they got to see the irony of that. The visit by American President Nixon to Jack Ma's city of Hangzhou had opened up China to foreign visitors, which helped Jack develop his masterful people, entrepreneurial and English language skills, talents he used to the absolute maximum in founding Alibaba. Duncan Clark. He really struggled in school. He only got into university, I think, on his third attempt. I mean, he got into a teacher training college just by the skin of his teeth, basically, by, I think, one point or something on his third attempt. And at that point, he was already, I think, resigned, if not, to sort of just working in whatever he could find. I mean, he was already delivering goods on bicycles. You know, he said he's applied many times to KFC and you know, they accepted 23 people and not him or something. So he sort of mythologized a bit his failures. I'm sure there were some. He loves to make light of his failures. And the importance of that is that at the time of the dot-com, the early internet players in China, the key players in China mostly had come back from places like Harvard or MIT. And they were frankly name-dropping to say, well, you know, I went to this elite school in the US and now I'm back. And Jack was the opposite because he hadn't, even in China, he hadn't got into the top schools, which would typically be in Beijing or in Shanghai or even in Hangzhou. He was not in the top university. So he's famously quite a short fellow. So he's not necessarily going to be the first picked in a service job. And he made actually an asset of all his weaknesses by surprising people how self-deprecating he is. Because again, there was a lot of bravado. There was a, you know, it's a cliche term in China, but face, you know, the idea that you have to puff yourself up basically and admit no weaknesses. He just did the opposite. And it was quite endearing. I mean, it got your attention, but he also had very big ambitions. It was a very weird combination. He'd be like, I'm nothing, but I'm going to change the world. <laughs> it's like, what? That's Jack Ma's friend, author Duncan Clark. His talent for the English language helped Jack Ma set up his first proper enterprise, if we don't count walking tours for tourists around his hometown. He created a translation business that took him on his first business trip overseas, to the US, as part of his work for the Hangzhou local government. On that visit, in 1995, he came across the internet for the first time. On being told he could look up anything he wanted, reasonably enough, he chose to search for beer. Ma tells the story that he found no information on any beers from China, but plenty about beers from the rest of the world. He quickly realised this lack of a Chinese presence on the internet was a potentially lucrative business opportunity. On his return to China, he set up his first online business, China Pages, kind of what you might find on Google Maps nowadays, where you can easily locate businesses. This was, of course, at a time before much of China even had access to the internet. Ma closed down China Pages in the face of strong competition from the local state-backed company. He was seemingly ahead of the game with the internet. So, he took a job backed by the Beijing government. But he felt he was missing out on his possible future and returned to Hangzhou and set up Alibaba.com as an internet space to help Chinese businesses export to businesses around the world. Ray Ma is founder of Tech Buzz China. 
One thing a lot of people fail to appreciate about how impactful um, Jack Ma and his empire is, is that China is actually very different, right? So unlike the West where, you know, offline retail has been here for over 150 years, and even today you see that actually e-commerce has much higher penetration, right? Has much higher percentage market share of total retail versus pretty much any other country in the world. So Alibaba has had a disproportionate influence on how people buy and sell things in China, period, full stop. One man who was there from the very early days was Duncan Clark, the author of the book, The House That Jack Ma Built. He went to meet Jack Ma when Alibaba was first set up in Jack's wife's apartment in Hongzhou in 1999. What was Jack Ma like? Super friendly, down to earth, humbly dressed, very kind, you know, treating for lunch and everything. And then visiting the apartment, suddenly you're into this the equivalent of the Silicon Valley garage. It, it wasn't a garage in the case of uh, Alibaba. It was actually Jack Ma's wife's apartment. She bought it a few years earlier. But the whole place had been taken over by the whole team. And they were working around the clock. You walk in, it was sort of a, a nervous energy. You could sense uh, people were working hard. Uh, I remember using the bathroom at one point, and there were all these toothbrushes jammed into a few mugs in the bathroom. You could see this was no longer a home. This was an office. This was, you know, the beginning of something you sensed because um, there was a great camaraderie there. Jack Ma is very funny. He likes to crack jokes at his own expense, which at the time I remember noting was quite unusual. There was a lot of, in the sort of dot-com wave, which was, you know, starting, let's say, 97, 89 in the West and then in China, there was a lot of bravado. There was a lot of exaggeration about we're going to change the world. So, Jack Ma was leading a hard-working team with charisma, drive and a bit of humour. But like all entrepreneurs, he had to take risks and make sure they were the right ones. Ray Ma is founder of TechBuzz China. For Jack, there were many, many risks that he took, right? So, so first of all, for a guy who didn't come from a particularly wealthy family, who had not studied abroad, unlike many of his contemporaries who started internet businesses, it was a little bit of a stretch for him to start an internet business back in 1999. Because again, if you compare him to the founders of Sohu, Baidu, all these contemporaries, those are people who had gone to the US or UK or wherever for graduate school and were intimately familiar with the workings of the internet. You know, you have this English teacher, right, who not left China for any long length of time. That was his first risk. And you you can see it in the fact that he did not raise conventional venture capital from the get-go. The company is actually self-funded, right? The 18 co-founders themselves took out their savings and funded the company. Second big risk he took was, like I said, originally Alibaba started as a B2B wholesale business, facilitating import and export of goods in and out of China. But in 2003 is when they launched, Jack decided to go into the consumer business. So that was a risk because at the time, Chinese internet penetration wasn't very high. You know, the infrastructure wasn't quite there yet. And you had a well-funded competitor at the time was called EachNet being acquired by eBay. And so you had this, you know, well-funded competitor with superior technology, lots of experience in that exact business line who was coming into China. So Jack had to take a big risk in order to defeat 
eBay, he had to come up with a differentiated business model, which was he made all transactions free. He not only had to convince his investors that this was the right way to go, it was a risk whether or not it would take off at all, right? Even if he made it free, but he won that battle. And then the next big risk he took, I think, when he launched Alipay. And this is the online payments business that ended up facilitating most of e-commerce transactions in China for the next decade. And even now today, it's uh, the largest digital payment business in China. So that was risky because at the time, there were not a lot of regulations around this new and emerging space. Who'd have thought that keeping your services free would help defeat a rival the size of eBay? It wasn't until three years into the business that Alibaba became profitable, but they held out against their competitors, offering a brand and service that Jack Ma believed was more aligned to the Chinese mindset. Brian Wong was the 52nd employee and first American Chinese employee, entrepreneur, and author of the book, The Tao of Alibaba. I use the term secret sauce, <laughs> or the Tao of Alibaba. I would describe it more specifically of how the organization integrated this concept of mission, vision, and values as kind of the road that it's trying to follow, and then supported by these concepts of organizational structure, the selection of people, and the performance management, and how that all fit together as one. Wrapped around that is this philosophical principle of the Tao and this yin-yang. And throughout its history, you see how it takes into account the three principles I talked about in terms of the way, uh, harmony, and the unity of contradictions. And they sort of are constantly calibrating themselves between these polarities. And this is what has allowed um, the company to evolve and recreate itself over the last 20 years, but also stay true to its original mission, which is to make it easy to do business anywhere and ultimately really help the underdogs in society by empowering them using this technology. Duncan Clark also saw this eccentric humility combined with immense ambition in his friend Jack Ma's personality and the culture he encouraged in the staff at Alibaba. I think he definitely leveraged that sense of being an underdog. And he also, he's fascinated with kind of mythical tales from China's past, some of which are based on history, others are works by his favorite author, a guy called Jin Yong, who is a Hong Kong-based writer who became very influential. There's sort of the underdog literature, let's say, he really identified with that. The point that early on in Alibaba, and even for many years, like everybody in the company had to adopt a nickname from these novels, right? It's a sort of a folklore that he embraced for the company. It's part of the culture. We're the underdog. I'm the underdog. Again, making a virtue of your weaknesses. And I think the key reason I think he did that was he loved to be underestimated. There was nothing more that he liked than having people dismiss him because he didn't go to the right school or he didn't have the right background. And then just crush them in the market. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it was sort of his secret source, really, was to be underestimated. And there was one moment in particular when Duncan Clark realized that his friend Jack Ma was becoming quite a business success and a highly influential man. So I helped him set up some offices overseas and go to trade shows. And uh, he was hilarious. I always enjoyed going there. I wasn't living in Hangzhou. I was living in both Beijing and Shanghai at that time. And you had to take the train. Today, it's so easily connected from Hangzhou to Shanghai, it's like an hour, you know. But back then, it was a few hours. We were talking in 99, 2000. And Hangzhou was definitely a, a big gap between, say, Hangzhou and Beijing and Shanghai. And Beijing and Shanghai was starting to get really 
quite fancy. We had China was joining the WTO a few years later. So Hangzhou was a bit like going back in time, a scrappy, high growth place. And it was always a pleasure to visit Hangzhou. And, and Jack already was quite well known. I mean, I remember once I went to his office, I took the train from Shanghai, got to his office, and then suddenly I realized, oh my God, I left my suitcase in the uh, taxi that had taken me from the station. I suddenly realized in the middle of a meeting, we were talking about something and he saw my face and said, what's wrong? I said, well, I think I left my suitcase. I really didn't bring it here. He said, no problem. And he had basically a broadcast to all the taxi drivers in Hangzhou. I think he may have even gone on the radio station. <laughs> there was a message, you know, please deliver this missing suitcase back to this address. And sure enough, after the meeting, there was my suitcase. So I realized, wow, he was already quite a big deal in the city of Hangzhou. <laughs> yeah. So what I'd seen at first hand in the little flat with just a dozen people, I started to realize he was becoming quite a personality in the city itself. I'm Rod Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life of Jack Ma, the man behind Alibaba. Disrupt Radio. Jack Ma is very funny. He likes to crack jokes at his own expense. Kind of a funny-looking guy. In China, he's considered quite unattractive. Actually, he talks about this all the time. He said, I never plan anything. I, you know, everything is just like decided the last minute. It's not true, but he liked people to underestimate him. He was very different from the rest, but I also think that's what made him quite interesting and unique. I told him, I said, use your powers wisely. Use them for good, not evil, because you know, you're quite dangerous. And I said to him, you know, if I could buy shares in you, I would in a heartbeat. He came on stage and he did a Michael Jackson impression and he sang Thriller. He came back the next year and he was the Lion King. He'd left his lane, if you will. The government was happy to have him in his retail lane, but the moment he moved into the banking and finance lane, they weren't happy with that at all. Most people do consider him quite self-made. So in that sense, he's super well-respected. Jack Ma created the technology titan of Chinese online trading that is Alibaba, without an impressive higher education or any coding experience. What he did have, though, was vision, a genuine gift of the gab in both Chinese and English, and an ability to communicate effectively to the teams he employed and the public he sold to. In 2023, Alibaba's various e-commerce portals control around 50% of all Chinese online commerce. Jack Ma achieved this whilst maintaining a sense of humour that saw him regularly in fancy dress at corporate events in front of 40,000 people, singing songs from The Lion King or dancing like Michael Jackson. Duncan Clark is a friend of Jack Ma's an early advisor, and he saw how Ma had to operate right from the start. You'd have to tell people, oh, there's this Chinese company from a place called Hangzhou, which they'd never heard of, which, by the way, has an Arabic name called Alibaba, <laughs> run by this guy, doesn't have a tech background, and, you know, trust them, it's going to be great. Uh, and then within China, he also had a terrible time convincing those companies of producing goods that wanted to export. First, about the internet. I mean, he was very early with the internet. I mean, the internet was something that he early on in 95, you know, when even the US, it was still quite early, he had a trip to the US. And he just got this wow moment when he realized the power of the internet. 
And at that time, he had his first internet business was called China Pages, which he was trying to create like a yellow pages, if you will, you know, these directory businesses. And he wanted to convince companies in China to pay him to list their name in this directory, this virtual directory. And they would say, what is, you know, what is the internet? And he had to say, he had basically took to inventing quotes. He invented a quote by Bill Gates, said, well, Bill Gates has said the internet will change all of our lives. And actually, Bill Gates hadn't said that. He did later. <laughs> and Jack Ma, he was challenged later and said, you said that Bill Gates said the internet will change the world. He said, no, he hadn't, but I knew he would. <laughs> so the reason I quoted Bill Gates or misquoted Bill Gates, he said, was if I, Jack Ma, said the internet is going to change people's lives, they would say, well, who's Jack Ma? But if I said Bill Gates said that, then they would believe it. <laughs> so, you know, he has an interesting relationship with the truth sometimes, you know. But in a way, he's such a visionary that he knew that eventually Bill Gates would recognize it. So there's this idea that Jack Ma was a great storyteller. And he had to be because, again, his first internet business called China Pages, he was trying to get money from merchants, say, in his hometown of Hangzhou, said, like, you know, pay me a few hundred dollars and I'm going to list you on this thing called the internet. And they couldn't even try the internet because there was no internet connection at that point in the city of Hangzhou. <laughs> Maybe it was just coming to Shanghai or Beijing. But so that's a huge act of faith. That's a great sales pitch to convince people to pay you for something that they can't even see or use <laughs> and tell them it's going to change their business. Jack Ma developed Alibaba into one of the world's largest retailers and e-commerce companies. You could trade between businesses as a retail consumer or use Alibaba financial services and their cloud storage. Jack Ma started Alibaba in his wife's apartment in Hangzhou with 17 colleagues from all walks of life. People wanted to work for Jack Ma. They believed in him. Brian Wong was the first American Chinese employee. He's an entrepreneur and author of the book, The Tao of Alibaba. I think it's a lot harder than it seems to start a company, at least a company with of purpose. But what you find is that it's the intangibles, it's that motivation that drives you through those hard times. And Jack had so many challenges in his life, but he was able to overcome them because he wasn't afraid of those failures because he had already faced them and encountered them. But there was something much greater that was pushing him. And so that, first and foremost, is critical. Second is surrounding yourself with the right team that will complement you because no one person can be good at everything. And Jack's strength was his vision and his ability to communicate, but he had very capable people helping with the finance, the legal aspects, and the operations. So understanding where you're strong and where you're weak, and then finding people to complement you. And then third, I think, is just not allowing yourself to take this so seriously that you really are not having fun in the process. I think one thing that Jack really demonstrated is his ability to laugh when things were tough and enjoy what he was doing and help others enjoy the journey. You know, we often talk about this entrepreneurial pursuit as it's not the IPO that's the end goal. It's not becoming rich and famous that's the end goal. It's the creation process and the enjoyment of kind of working with others to go on that journey. It can't have all been a laugh creating this massive business in a fast-growing Chinese economy that was still maintained by a one-party communist system. Jack Ma was, however, a leader that people wanted to work for. But Brian Wong explains how Jack Ma kept his team on track as the company grew and internal conflicts developed. Around 100, 200 people, there was already politics that started to emerge. And Jack, again, this is part of his authenticity and genuine character as a leader. He insisted that we bring people together in the same room 
those who were talking about others to him and complaining, he said, I do not want this organization to be um, destroyed from the inside because of backstabbing, because of people talking about others. We're going to hash this out in this room right now with everyone that has an issue with anyone else. And I want you to tell them directly what the issue is and we're going to confront this. And I think that set a precedent for open and direct communication. And also it was an attempt to reduce the amount of politics that is natural that happens. But this openness created a different sort of environment. That is how Jack deals with these sort of conflicts. And Jack himself will be direct with you if he has uh, concerns or issues, but at the same time, he's supportive and constructive. You know, I think any time that when I was working with him that there were issues that he wasn't happy with, he would tell you, but he'd also say, I know you can fix this, or I know I believe in your ability to address this. I think that gives you a sense of confidence in what you can do, but also a sense of a clarity in terms of what the problem is. Ray Ma says his wise recruitment and leadership is at the heart of Jack Ma's success. She is the founder of Tech Buzz China. Jack Ma's superpower is really his ability to build teams. He says that he doesn't know many things. He is not a master technologist. He's not really particularly master operator or a businessman, or、um, maybe he's really good at marketing and speaking, but. There are many things he's not good at, but what he's really good at is identifying talent and being generous enough with his share of the company, and basically convincing the right person to join the team at the right time and giving them the right economics. Because if we don't give them the right economics, they're not going to join, right? So you see this happening repeatedly over and over in. His career in Alibaba's history, the company is actually self-funded in the very beginning by himself and his other seventeen co-founders. So he was able to convince seventeen other people to join him and pull together money on this business of which you know he had this vision. And the reason why they are considered all co-founders is because they were all given shares in the company. And in 1999. Heck, even today in some parts of the world, that's not as common as one would think, right? So he was very generous. You also see that he recruited Joe Tsai, who was his number two for many years. Now, also since retired, Joe was a Yale grad who knew the ins and outs of the venture capital and technology capital markets. At the time, and was able to bring his much-needed big infusion of capital that allowed Alibaba to stay strong and win against eBay. He just has made really, really good leadership decisions throughout his career. Brian Wong worked with Jack Ma and is the author of the book The Tower of Alibaba. He saw the leadership of the English teacher turned internet business entrepreneur close up. In the book, I talk about five aspects of leadership defined by, you know, sort of Jack and the company: empowerment being the first, a sense of humility; second,、um, mental dexterity as a feature of a leader; and then four, empathy; and five, self-awareness. I would say the empowerment side and the humility side really do represent how teachers empower their own students, and one day hope that they will succeed them. I think that that very much was part of his leadership style.、Um, when we talk about Empathy. I mentioned this concept of LQ, that stands for love quotient. And we talk often about EQ and IQ as factors of success in leaders. But what Jack often talked about is this love quotient, which is really empathy for those around you. 
He often said, if you want to be successful and rich and famous, you need a high Q and IQ. But if you want to be respected in society, you need a strong LQ. So I think that that is also a hallmark of Jack's leadership style. And part of this comes from the fifth aspect I talked about, self-awareness. It's sort of knowing who you are and knowing how you relate to others and how you influence others. So former colleague Brian Wong thinks Jack Ma developed his hugely successful approach to business from his combined EQ, IQ and LQ, but no barbecues, despite the visits he made to Australia with the Morley family, who he met as a child as he practised his English whilst offering tours to tourists in his hometown of Hangzhou. In fact, the University of Newcastle offers the Ma and Morley scholarship programme to students who want to change the world. So, Forbes magazine estimates Jack Ma's net wealth to be $25.5 billion. Ray Ma is the founder of Tech Buzz China. How does his wealth sit with the Chinese people? Most people do consider him quite self-made. So in that sense, he's super well-respected. Jack Ma is kind of a funny-looking guy. If you Google a picture of him, you'll see that he's not very tall. He has this kind of squarish head and in... China, he's considered quite unattractive. Actually, he talks about this all the time, that he was rejected when he was trying to get a job after college. He, you know, tried to go work at McDonald's or, you know, he worked at a restaurant, whatever, and he wouldn't be hired because he was considered sort of too freakishly looking. <laughs> uh, his nickname is sort of like an alien, right? They call him an alien, like Martian. But that's also sort of a loving nickname because what is embedded in that nickname is the fact that this guy is seeing the world from like an otherworldly perspective, right? He's like an alien looking at the opportunities on earth. And this is why he's able to be so strategic and so forward thinking and take all the right risks. The one sort of controversial part, I would say the average person feels towards him is that in Chinese culture, humility is very much valued, and Jack Ma tends to be a little bit maybe more flamboyant than the average person. <laughs> so some people could think that he's a little bit of a show-off and he could be more low-key. He likes to be the center of attention, which is a little bit less common in China. So you'll find that a lot of the other internet entrepreneurs, especially the ones obviously who were not teachers in their past, tend to be a lot more low-key because they come from a mathematics or engineering background and they tend to be more so-called nerdy or geeky and less talkative. But Brian Wong, the first American Chinese employee at Alibaba, sees Jack Ma's dream for Alibaba from the outset had its root in something more creative and altruistic. With regard to the vision for Alibaba, I often tell people that Jack was inspired by this tradition of wuxia, which translates into this kung fu culture. This came from many of the books he read. And these stories talk about these warriors in the underworld who are trying to bring justice to society and help the marginalized or the less privileged. This is not unlike the tradition of Robin Hood in the West. I think that what Jack believed is that business is a tool for empowerment of these individuals and that technology was the great equalizer in providing a level playing field for the small businesses and entrepreneurs. So we always believed that at Alibaba, we were fighting for the underdog. 
we were helping the marginalized become part of the mainstream economy. And that applied to both the domestic market in China, but also globally. And I think that's what makes Jack so inspirational is his ability to dream uh, and imagine what is possible and then enable other people to help achieve that dream or those goals together. Alibaba started as a means of helping Chinese businesses export to other businesses around the world. It then followed up by creating a consumer-to-consumer retail platform. They merged the two platforms and held them together with a glue in the form of the payment system they created called Alipay. Alipay became Ant Group, a much bigger financial services group, effectively a bank. This was all quite an achievement for a self-deprecating English language teacher. Duncan Clark is author of the book The House That Jack Ma Built and an early advisor to Ma. He's a master strategist. You know, he really thinks about what he's doing, but he, he doesn't let on. So the, the cliche was that those who fail to plan, plan to fail. You really have to plan everything. And he was the opposite. He said, I never plan anything. I, you know, everything is just I decide the last minute. It's not true, but he liked people to underestimate him. And many people did, including famously the head of eBay, Meg Whitman, who would joke about him. I mean, uh, you know, Alibaba early on said, we're going to destroy eBay. We're going to be bigger than eBay. And at the time, eBay was the big thing. And people just dismissed him. And in the end, he did it. You know, he was completely underestimated. And so his strategy worked. They didn't pay enough attention to what he was doing. I told him, I said, you know, use your powers wisely. You know, use them for good, not evil, because, you know, you're quite dangerous. And I said to him, you know, if I could buy shares in you, I would, you know, in a heartbeat. Something about him, you knew he was going places. And because he would get people to follow him and invest in him, you know, he was able to eventually get to the right business, which really changed China and changed the world, one could say. But it started with his personality and, and the ability to attract a team and then capital and then later customers. And he was always very humorous. So he's an incredibly funny person, both in Chinese, but also, of course, in English, because having been an English teacher, he did speak English. He does speak English. Uh, again, it's not always grammatically 100%, but he's one of the most gifted communicators I've ever met. You know, he's, he's an amazing storyteller. He can read the room like a great comedian. So many times he's reduced audiences to you know, laughter or tears. or you know, That may be part of his later challenges because he was so gifted that he's kind of took the light away from the politicians <laughs> or the established figures that he was taking on. After years of growth, President Xi Jinping has seemed to have widened his focus to bring even more of the economy under his control. His common prosperity policy has seen major crackdowns in much of the economy, with the technology industry coming in for particular scrutiny. In November 2020, on the eve of another commercial success, Jack Ma went missing. He was the first of several Chinese high-profile tech billionaires to disappear. Ant Group, the digital payment side of Alibaba, had been about to launch the world's biggest initial public offering on the stock exchange. Ma had addressed an assembly of high-profile figures with a controversial speech that criticised the Chinese financial system. I think Jack left the public limelight after a speech, an infamous speech that he gave in Shanghai in October 2020, where in front of an audience of mostly government regulators, he basically said that the government was backwards, that actually they didn't understand how to regulate companies like this financial empire that he was building, that the internet was like, you need to be an air traffic controller, not a canal lock operator or something. He basically was telling the government that they don't understand. <laughs> and so anyway, this speech in Shanghai, plus the sheer scale of his ambition and 
presenting it as an inevitable development that IPO would definitely happen. Well, the government intervened and stopped it at the very last minute. It was a very loud screeching of the brakes and smoke and very surprising. And the investors in that company are still stuck waiting to find out what's going to happen to their money. Jack Ma had until then successfully managed the complex relationship between the major capitalist growth from his companies and the communist Chinese authorities. Ray Ma from TechBuzz China. The Chinese government isn't a monolithic entity. You have the local governments who primarily love Jack Ma, especially the Hangzhou government where Alibaba is headquartered because it has brought so much tax revenue and employment to the region and it's now become a hub of innovation specifically for e-commerce in China. There are so many other businesses that Alibaba has enabled that have been built up around Alibaba's headquarters in Hangzhou for example. So those people love Jack Ma. Then you have the regulators, the central government regulators who are in charge of overseeing the even developed the economy throughout the whole country figuring out where the systemic financial risks in the country who are in charge of antitrust and anti-competitive behavior intellectual property disputes these people probably have a bit of a more contentious relationship with Jack Ma as we have seen because you know many of his businesses touch upon these sensitivities right like Alibaba is a platform that facilitates e-commerce but many of those goods that are sold on the platform for example were infringed upon intellectual property he believed that the regulators should be more risk taking as he has been with their policy making peter fisk has written 10 books on international business and is a business advisor jack mar had been astute to rub the chinese government's back when they had rubbed his I remember Jack Ma talking about one of the biggest problems they had was the ability to cope with the amount of people jumping on trains from the big cities in China to the countryside for the big holiday days and the ticketing system which was an embryonic digital platform just couldn't cope with it and so the government asked Jack Ma and his Alibaba technology team to sort it out and they said they would and they would do it for free So they do sometimes do favors for the government and so there's this kind of well in Chinese culture but also in terms of business to the government there's this relationship. But as we know then as Alibaba got larger and more dominant and Jack Ma became older if you like then the government became more cautious to the point where and well documented in 2020 there was a planned IPO of Ant Group which is the financial company and he started to criticize the financial services structure and the restraints which are put on it for entrepreneurs and that was the moment when it felt like the chinese government really turned and from being somebody who they supported in terms of helping to open up the chinese marketplace and to attract global investment into china they felt he'd gone too far and that's the moment he stepped down and he kind of mysteriously disappeared from the scene And so we knew at that moment that his relationship had quite changed with the government. Jack Ma has since laid low. Alibaba has been fined 2.8 billion dollars for abusing its market position, and Ant Group announced a drastic restructuring plan with regulators forcing it to act more like a bank than a tech firm. Jack Ma stepped down as the chairman of Alibaba in 2019. He has been seen in Japan, Thailand, and Australia. but never in a role for Alibaba. 
In the spring of 2023, he was seen in China for the first time since his disappearance. He met staff and toured classrooms at the Yonggu School in Hangzhou. Other than that, nothing. It's not just us here at Disrupt Radio who are taking an interest in Alibaba. Joe Biden has ordered an investigation into the company too, all part of the growing suspicion felt in the West regarding the supposed soft power of Chinese businesses and its clear and explicit connections to a hostile communist government. Jack Ma straddled the line between a conservative, totalitarian state and the more dynamic requirements of untrammeled capitalism with summer plume, but it could not last. He was always a hard taskmaster and bought into the Chinese working day model of 996. Nine hours a day, six days a week. Now he can relax and take it easy for a bit, spending some quality time with his money. He has annoyed the authorities just a little too much. I'm Rod Little and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio. Tune in to opportunity. Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Sunil Badami. There's no doubt that despite more flexible work practices, we're working more and more. And more and more outside traditional working hours, with 13% of Aussies working overtime. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. You may end up spending more time with your boss or manager than your spouse or family. And let's face it, if they're a bad boss, it can end up making what you do for a living a living nightmare. The next shift empowers you to not only survive, but also thrive in this new era of work. Automation often doesn't take over a whole job. It takes over smaller tasks to make someone more efficient at their job. That's productivity enhancing. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.